0: This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Reality was starting to set in, and I seriously was wondering if I would never get to see anything ever again.
1: Becky Czar shares her personal experiences as a healthcare provider and young mom with total vision loss.
0: I remember saying to her, Mom, I'm not
1: strong enough. I had hit my rock bottom. My mom replied back to me, you can do this because you have a little boy who needs you. The Blind Reality. New episodes every second Tuesday of the month. Download this AMI podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome to Tales from the Halifax School for the Blind An AMI audio original podcast Where we explore what everyday life was like Inside this legendary institution Over the span of 112 years The Halifax School for the Blind Was home to thousands of blind and partially sighted children From Atlantic Canada and beyond Join me, Terry Kelly and my fellow former students as we take a trip down memory lane, reflecting on formative experiences and cherished memories from our beloved alma mater. Once again, we connect with Robert Mercer and Vivian O'Neill from their homes in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. Amongst other tales, we'll hear stories of planes, trains, and portable radios. And most importantly, Memories of returning home that first Christmas break to reunite with our loved ones. Last episode, I shared how Mr. Story convinced my parents that the Halifax School for the Blind was the best choice for my education. Soon after, preparations began for my epic journey. I spent my last few days at home savoring every bit of time I could spend with my friends and family, and so the day came that I had to leave home. And I remember it was a Friday at noon, and there was a train. It was called the Newfie Bullet. I remember that surreal, this dreamy feeling of, of, of the sadness and listening to my parents. Quietly crying, and my brothers and sisters, you know, loud, you know, audibly, I could hear them crying, my parents trying to hide it as they hugged me and said goodbye. And, and I left St. John's, Newfoundland at noon on Friday, and it was scheduled to arrive arrive on the other side of Newfoundland Saturday night at 10 p.m. And I thought, bullet? They call it a Newfie bullet, and it takes almost 24 hours to get across the island. So I thought that was a bit humorous. But nevertheless, that train ride was the magic as well because back then... You could open the windows on the train. I could I was in my bunk and I could open the window and listen to when we crossed the bridge, how you could hear the rail of the bridge. You we went through a tunnel, you could hear that. And just the clicking of the tracks and then the wind blowing in and the different aromas that would come from the woods. And as you went through different towns, a smell of food, cooking, restaurants, and homes. So it was a I got a, this this amazing auditory and 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 sensory image of Newfoundland going across the island on that train. And then in the daytime, we'd go out on the break where the cars were connected. And back then, you were allowed to stand there and have the top part of the door open. And I could listen to the sound and have the same experience. So these days, if you're on a train, you can't do that. You're not allowed. It's not safe, apparently. But, you know, as a kid, eight years old, we were allowed to do that uh, with different time altogether. But now, when I travel on a train, I miss all of that when I'm traveling, or you know, across Canada or traveling anywhere. So uh, it was a wonderful way for me to get the feel of going across the island. If we hadn't been allowed to open that window, I wouldn't have been able to hear them say goodbye to me. Uh, I'd be just sitting with the glass in front of me, other people watching through the glass, but I would have missed that, but I could hear them. And as the train slowly pulled away, I had an image of them standing back on the tracks. And then They drove out for about 20 miles uh, away from the train station where there was a train crossing. And there they were parked on the side of the road (laughs) calling out to me again, which (laughs) kind of makes me emotional right now thinking about it. Uh, And again, I got to see them through the uh, auditory, you know, sensory uh, with that window open on the train. The other thing that happened as we went across Newfoundland, we picked kids up along the way. And by the time, you know, there were about five of us on the train in St. John's, and as we traveled across the island, we got to port a and there were like 30, 35, 40, uh, probably 40 kids on board. And we start meeting new friends. Then we got on the William Carston crossed over uh, the Cabot Strait, and then uh, boarded another train the next night in um North Sydney, and uh, we traveled all night, arrived in Halifax Sunday morning. So there we go. Friday afternoon, noon in St. John's, arriving in Halifax Sunday morning at about 9:30, 10 a.m., three days, two nights, three days away from home. And for little kids, uh, that was a long, long way from home. Uh, We walk out of the train station, walk into the school, to the big doors. We get in, we walk up a long, long hallway over to the junior side where the little kids lived, where I was going to live for the next two, three years, three years. And they showed us to our dormitories. Now, I was used to sleeping with my brothers. There were four of us in a room at one time. But I was then introduced to a room with about 12 or 13 kids, and I really didn't know any of them. The kids I met on the train were from Newfoundland, and one or two of them were there. But there were kids from then New Brunswick, PEI, Nova Scotia, kids from all backgrounds. And I was in a dorm not knowing anyone. And it was time to go to bed, and it was a lonely, lonely time. We had lunch at the school, we had supper at the school, and then it was time to go to bed and putting on my new pajamas that my mom and dad had bought for me. Uh, typically we would be getting hand-me-downs at home, but I was fortunate enough to have brand new stuff. So I came to the school, put my brand new pajamas on and went to bed in this strange, strange place with noises that I could, I'd never heard before. And my mom and dad weren't there, um, to say goodnight. And so finally got to sleep. Back then, some of the house parents smoked and I woke up in the morning. I smelled cigarette smoke. My dad at the time smoked and um, I I was excited. I was running down, downstairs to see my dad and then I heard this lady say, time to get up and she was ringing, ringing a bell. She had this hand bell that woke us up and I could smell the cigarette and I realized that it wasn't Dead cigarette. It was the hers, and then I r- heard all these other boys uh, being quiet, shy, some crying. I guess we were all kind of sad or crying, having our emotions. And then we had to line up to go to breakfast. And um, this was a Monday morning because we arrived on Sunday. Arrived, uh, went down for breakfast, came back, then we lined up again for school. And I went into my kindergarten classroom with Mrs. Miller, I was introduced to her. Mrs. Miller, uh, it was an interesting smell in her room. She had had, um, plants growing, she had hamsters, she had budgie birds, I remember. She had a bunch of different things for us. And the classes began and she began to teach us then about looking at things with our hands. Two years before I first walked into Mrs. Miller's classroom, Vivian McLean, now Vivian O'Neill, had a similar experience quickly falling in love with a menagerie of animals in Mrs. Miller's primary class.
2: In Nova Scotia, they had primary classes, and uh, I think that, I don't know for sure, probably about 10 children or so in this one classroom, and we had a marvelous teacher. Her name was Mrs. Miller, and uh, Mrs. Miller was wonderful. She was always kind and very competent, capable teacher, much admired by the other staff, you know. And uh, she had a room full of animals and and also the walls were full of all the crafts we made and the things we did and learning the alphabet. But the best thing about Mrs. Miller's class was she had a full of, there was a great big, huge tank of guppies and there was a budgie bird who who was busy all day singing and chirping and doing what budgie birds do. And uh, a very special treat was she'd let you hold the pencil and the budgie bird, she'd let the budgie bird out and it would land on your pencil. You weren't supposed to touch it, but just kind of let let the budgie bird stay there and look at it and talk to it. So I think that's the first time I was ever that close to a bird. And I loved watching the fish. And then she had a, a hamster. And I was fascinated watching him go around and figuring out how his watering system worked, a little brown hamster. And then on the floor, there were two very, very large tortoises, probably about 15, 20 inches long. And they just roamed around. I think I had the impression they were very old, maybe 20 or 40 years old. I don't know for sure. When you're a child, you know, everything seems big. And um, But, you know, here's a room full of probably several totally blind children, some visually impaired children uh nobody ever stepped on the tortoises i don't think <laughs> and we loved having them there they sort of hung around a particular corner and i guess mrs miller must have picked up whatever was necessary occasionally if everybody had a turn and we'd go and pairs down long long distance way to the other building through the corridor down the stairs into the basement and this marvelous old German lady who was our cook, she would be there waiting with a big, huge pans of old lettuce that she had saved for the tortoises. And we'd bring those back. And so that was kind of like a special treat. you got to run there and in class. So it was very, very shappy and, and delighted with all the animals in the, in the classroom there. And a year or two later, she acquired, Mrs. Miller acquired two white rats and they were instead of a hamster, and they were marvelous creatures, and we would be invited in to see them. And uh, then in the summer, she needed a place for them to go. So my best friend and I, Barbara, I don't know how we were so privileged, but she gave us each one to take home. If you have children, the best pet in all the world is a white rat. It's just that they really actually interact, and they're they're happy to see you, and they love, they'll sit in your hood and walk around, and mine would sit on my shoulder. And uh, I was home for the summer, and. He, and his name was Skizix. <laughs> and uh, he was sitting on my shoulder and I had long hair. And uh, I came into the kitchen. My mother had company. Lots of ladies were sitting there. And uh, I forgot about the rat and behind my hair. And he poked his little nose out behind my... One of the women stood up and she said, oh, Am I, I seen? Of course, they were farm women. They had no reason. But, you know, some women, farm women are just as scared of mice as anyone else. You know. <laughs> so.
0: A few years later, Skeezix escaped the classroom for about two weeks. After extensively touring around inside the walls of the old school, Mrs. Miller engaged us in a problem-solving session. We devised a trap, filled with tasty little rat treats, which brought Skeezix back home to the safety of his classroom habitat. For those who may not remember, Skeezix was named after the character in the renowned comic strip Gasoline Alley. Although comics were big at the time, nothing could match the radio in terms of reach and influence within the student body of the School for the Blind. Much like my experience on the Newfie Bullet, a late-night encounter with a runaway locomotive inside the girls' dormitory made a lasting impression on a young Vivian McLean.
2: So I only remember feeling unsafe, I think, once at school. And I'm not positive it was the first night, but it was one of the first nights. and And I woke up. And, um, I could hear, uh, one of the other girls and, and she wasn't a girl I knew well, but in the middle of the night, she was always very quiet and off in the corner with her other little friend. And, but this, in the middle of the night, she was doing a, um, she was doing a one-man performance of the Ballad of Casey Jones. And this is not a song I was familiar with at the time or ever heard it about since, but it's about this train engineer who sets out on a trip. And it's quite aptly described as he was taking a ride to paradise. So uh, she started her little song and I woke up at four in the morning and I heard her and her voice was very clear through the darkness and um, almost seemed around the corner. I think the very small dormitory had sort of a corner area, but it's almost an L. So I couldn't see her or anything. She was around the corners anyway. So Susan Casey, finally her name was Casey. Susan Casey was reciting the ballad of Casey Jones and, she was really good at the sounds, so she'd start with the train whistles and the tugle chuggles, of the wheels, and she was telling the story of this man going down the rails faster and faster and faster. And it, it, there wasn't supposed to be another train on the tracks. He had the paper saying he was okay, but there was. And so she starts with the whistles and the, and then yelling for Casey, you know, look out, look out, look out. And just for one few brief seconds, I'm thinking there really isn't a train coming through here, because <laughs> she was doing such a great job of the whistles and the and the excitement and yelling to get off the train, jump, jump. You know. Anyway, Johnny Cash sang the ballad of Casey Jones. You can look it up on Wikipedia. I did the other day after we talked about that story. I thought, now I wonder what that was all about, and I looked it up, and there it was, the ballad of Casey Jones. And um, yeah, you can listen to it. Johnny Cash, nineteen sixty, probably. So she knew it off by heart. (laughs) And I remember feeling silly, you know, that, well, there's no train coming through here. But then she was so good at those noises. I'm like, oh, there's no train going through
0: here. Susan Casey's soliloquy was likely one of the many strange ways kids had of staving off homesickness. And those first few months at the school were by far the most difficult. Letters were slow and only accessible to some. So contact with family was scarce. Although my dad and sister Jan eventually learned to read and write Braille, and would often surprise me with letters, it was no substitute for the human voice. Access to the telephone was limited, so our wonderful house parent, Miss Connors, took advantage of the cutting-edge technology of the day and intimately connected my family and me by recording and exchanging reel-to-reel audiotapes. Robert Mercer recalls his own struggles fighting homesickness and finding his footing at the school. Getting into the daily rhythm of the school was a big help, but it was a prescient gift from Robert's grandmother that made the challenge of fitting in much easier.
1: It took me a while before I began feeling at home at school. Um, I would say a full month. Up until then, I really felt that I was going back home almost any day, you know. It took that long. I think, for me to realize that that wasn't going to happen. And then you kind of settle in, you know. So I began to feel at home. uh, Also, knowing the routine, knowing, you know, what classes you're in at what time of day, uh, knowing your way around the school, having met some of the other kids at school, knowing most of the staff. uh, I say a month passed, and then I kind of felt that this was my home for a while. And Christmas was three months away. To me, that was like ten years. You know, I didn't really think that was ever going to happen. But once you settle in um, and get about your schoolwork and and um, you know doing things with the other boys and things like this, uh, i I did feel that it was my home. I also had um a companion with me in a sense. I call it my companion. On my 10th birthday, the two days before I left for the School for the Blind, my grandmother bought me a transistor radio. And back in 1958, uh, it wasn't, I think, more than a few years that transistors were on the market, but the very idea of carrying a radio without plugging it in was, you know, for a child was just unbelievable. But this was something my grandmother really couldn't afford she just knew the importance of me having that radio before I left. Every time I picked it up and turned, turned on the radio, it reminded me a little bit of home and it just helped me work my way into the school because all of a sudden I started knowing things that I didn't know before. Uh, I could talk about the news. Uh, I knew the songs on the radio. I knew basically what was on the hip parade. Uh, I got into sports. I, uh, um, got to like baseball mostly, uh, and I could pick up all the games from uh, as far away as New York and Baltimore. Aside from that, at that age, I was mostly interested in music, as were the other kids. Some early songs, early pieces I remember that kind of stand out for me is a a musical piece called Wheels. I remember that in particular. It was a solo piano piece piece because um, a girl by the name of Mary Wiffen used to play it on stage in the morning when we were up for morning assembly. Marty Robbins, El Paso, songs like that back to the 50, 58, 59, 60, mostly songs that were on the hit parade that kids were listening to. And at 10 years old, you're not quite a teenager, but you think you are.
0: At night, I loved listening to the radio stations of the day from across the Maritimes, Maine, Boston, and New York. And... When the weather was just right, I could even tune into VOCM radio, broadcasting loud and clear from my beloved home in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Hearing the announcer's voices, the music, and the advertisements for all the familiar businesses helped keep the homesickness at bay. Even better was that first trip home for Christmas after being away from my family for almost four months. That momentous occasion still conjures up vivid memories for Robert.
1: I think the first year at school, um, going home at Christmas was perhaps a little bit more ingrained in my memory than Christmases after that because I saw things that I hadn't seen before. First of all, I realized that as excited as I was to see the suitcases lined up at the school and my trunk lined up me with a train ticket me going home the next day it's uh it's uh, a feeling that is is very very difficult to put in words uh, that kind of excitement on the other side i remember the sadness of realizing that a friend of mine from in my class couldn't go home at christmas time so he had to stay there because he lived in let's say labrador And there was no way of getting home at Christmas time. So some of the kids had to stay there. And I remember thinking that that just, there's something wrong, something wrong with this, you know? So when I left at Christmas time to go home on the train, that was uppermost in my mind. I just, I felt terrible about leaving other kids at that school. Uh, It just didn't seem right. I I felt, I think there might've been a little bit of anger inside of me that said, there's got to be a way. I mean, fly them home, (laughs) you know? but, you know, money was short. Uh, a lot of the kids at the school were from very poor families, very poor backgrounds. Money money wasn't that easy to come by. And um, I think if it had been publicized a little bit, uh, the school probably could have raised money and got a few more kids home at Christmas time. You know, but that's a memory I have. I also remember getting on the train, the excitement of almost being it was it was like a party. I suppose we were all going home. We were all excited. We we had a. A box lunch from the school and treats that were passed around to us periodically on the trip home. you know now it's only two hundred and fifty miles, but minimally an eight hour trip in those days by train in the winter time uh sometimes you'd be on that train one in my case once for fifteen hours by the time we got home, one snowstorm after another, but it was uh, it was a bit of a party on the train you kind of you know felt that uh, you'd Done four months of work and now you were being rewarded for it, you know. And I had my radio so I could listen to things on the way home. I didn't find the trip particularly long at first. And the excitement as well of nearing your home, getting close to Sydney. I didn't know my geography as well as I should have, but there's places like Sydney Mines, North Sydney, Sydney Forks, uh, Sydney River, all of these Sydneys that are mentioned stopped at by the train and mentioned on your way to getting to Sydney, you know, and I didn't necessarily know the difference. Uh, I do now, of course, but uh, when you hit North Sydney, I knew now that Sydney was next uh, and that I was maybe 20 minutes from home. Uh, I didn't know what to expect at the train station. I obviously wanted to see my mother and my father and most of all, my brother, and they were there at the train station to meet me. When I got off the train, I couldn't even step down. And my mother reached up and grabbed me and pulled me. She pulled me right off the train. And I remember her words. She said, Robert, you don't, you don't have to go back to that school. No, you don't have to go back. Now, your father and I have talked it over, and you don't need to go back to the school for the blind, uh, or the blind school, as she called it. You don't have to go back there. And I don't know why, I just, I remember saying to her, I was leaning into her shoulder and I said, no, no, uh, I'll I'll be, I'll go back. And after, after Christmas, I was home for like two weeks or so at Christmas time. And I felt that that was uh, an eternity, you know, I'm home forever. Well, two weeks doesn't take long in passing, but when it was over, I was ready to go back. I was starting to miss some of the kids that I knew. I was starting to miss the routine of, uh, of, 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 the classroom. So you were kind of living in two different worlds at the same time. But uh, I don't know where it came from in my head to say to my mother, no, no, I'd like to go back. There's nothing I would have given more in the early time at school to get back home. I would have done anything. But here I was at home and basically saying to my mother, no, uh, I'm okay, I'll go back when, when Christmas is over. And when it was over, I went back and I went through the same Period, the same experience of loneliness uh, for maybe a week instead of a month this time. It seemed to pass a little bit, a little faster.
0: Vivian fondly remembers many of her holiday trips back home to the McLean farmstead in PEI. They were especially meaningful to her mother, as it was a rare opportunity for Mrs. McLean to travel.
2: So at the beginning and at the middle and at Easter and at the end, always. Re- going to school was traveling back and forth and my mother was of course probably had led quite a sheltered life in the farm and PEI so she got to travel Christmas, Easter, June she'd come uh, for me on the train and we'd go home on the train together most of the time not always occasionally they would drive but I don't know whether it was the first Easter or the second or third but very early on in the 60s there was a terrible terrible storm on PEI and all the trains were stopped for two or three days. Nothing was moving, and we were in the middle of it. So we got to uh, we got to the ferry at Borden, and uh, what normally took 45 minutes on the Abegweit took eight hours, because the ice was so thick. And then when we got to the other side, none of the trains were moving, so we had to and we disembarked onto a uh, the old PEI boat, which was you know on the side tied up. So we were there for a full day. And uh, then they finally got some of the trains going, but of course there were no roads out where I lived past Summerside. So they had to get out a horse and sleigh and go through the woods to come and pick us up off the train in uh, about five miles away. I think, of course, it was cold and it was deep snow, so they were worried about the horses. And I remember it was just about the most exciting thing that ever happened to me, and I would pop up and I wanted to watch the horses, and my father, thinking it was cold, he'd pop me down and throw some fur over me and he'd turn around and I'd pop back up again so I'd watch the horses and we went through the woods. It was just a a wonderful experience for me, you know, but of course it must have been worrying for everybody else. But yeah, going through the woods on a horse and sleigh,
0: that was pretty cool. Not quite as dramatic as Vivian's winter sleigh ride through the woods. I was one of the few Newfoundland and Labradorians lucky enough to get home over Christmas break. There wasn't enough time for the ferry and Newfie bullet so I was one of the fortunate students who could take to the sky. It wasn't my first flight, but definitely one of the most memorable, especially after the lovely flight attendant arranged a visit to the flight deck and then surprised me with a bag of miniature model airplanes. I must say, my lifelong passion for aviation was certainly ignited by that kind and thoughtful flight attendant. Reuniting with my family, sharing things I'd learned at the Halifax School for the Blind, and a few treats from Santa made it a memorable, magical visit back home. Before I knew it, the Christmas vacation was over, and I was off once again to the airport to fly back to Halifax. What happened next? To find out, please join us next time for more tales from the Halifax School for the Blind. This podcast was recorded and produced by Village Sound at the Village Sound Studios in Halifax, Nova Scotia, for Accessible Media, Inc., created and produced by Ryan Delhante, tech assistance from Sam Robinson. And many thanks to Andy Frank, manager for AMI Audio. Special thank yous to Vivian O'Neill, Cleon Smith, Shirley Trites, Joanna Pierce, and staff at the Atlantic Province's Special Education Authority. Our deepest gratitude goes out to Robert Mercer, whose book inspired this podcast, and to Mrs. Beaton and all the wonderful teachers, staff, and house parents at the school. If you enjoyed our show, please do take the time to subscribe, write us a review, and most of all, we would love to hear from any former students who are invited to join us in sharing their tales from the Halifax School for the Blind. Reach us by emailing Halifax at AMI.ca. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.